my plan is not in this whole class, and we'll see how it unfolds, to go just chapter by chapter. Um, I really wanted to do more uh, big chunks of Isaiah just just uh, just because of, of time and, and schedule. But today, I, I mean, that's really all we're going to do is just a small little section in Isaiah 7. I think we're going to speed up after chapter 12 when we get to some of the um, prophecies against the nations because I think those can be taken in larger sections. But we are going to uh, still continue to just move through this chapter. And there are a couple reasons for this. One, in 1 through 12, 1 through 12 really sets up the whole book. And so this is such a critical part of, of the, the text for us to really nail down. Also, of course, one of the great messianic promises is, is here in Isaiah 7. The, the, the promise, the prophecy that we get in this book of the virgin birth. And this is cited by Matthew in his gospel. Hey, uh, and it, um, and it's, uh, you know, so, so it plays such a prominent role in our understanding of the gospel and our understanding of the, the revelation of Christ. So we need to slow down and make sure we get that in context in order to understand how it fits, uh, with the new Testament. Now, um, I want to remind you a little bit of Isaiah's historical context. Remember in Isaiah 1, um, he says, you don't, you don't have to turn there, I'll read it to you. The vision of Isaiah the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, so we know the geographic location, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Now, that's worth keeping in mind because we're going to be introduced directly to Ahaz. It's not just in the days of Ahaz, that chapter 7 takes place, it's actually with Ahaz. He, he is a character in the story. Some of the other prophecies, even uh, in 1 through 6, or 1 through 5, I should say, we don't know exactly when they took place. We can, we can try to piece it together and, and make some, some pretty good guesses, but we don't know. Now, in chapter 6, we do know it was in the year that King Uzziah died. And here, we know that it's in the days of Ahaz. So, I want to just take a minute because, you know, you may not remember who Ahaz is, um, but Ahaz is the son of Jotham. Okay, we figured that out from verse 1. Let me just read you a, a brief summary of Ahaz's reign from 2 Kings 16. Uh, I'll start in verse 1. In the 17th year of Pekah, the son of Remaliah, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned uh, 16 years in Jerusalem, and he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God as his father David had done. But he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. So he's in the southern kingdom, but he's acting like one of the kings in the northern kingdom. What does that mean? He even burned his son as an offering according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. And then what happens is it says, Then Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, the king of Remaliah, king of Israel, came up to wage war on Jerusalem. They besieged Ahaz, but they could not conquer him. And it goes on. Basically, Ahaz sent messengers, I'm reading, I'm skipping down to verse 7, to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, so he goes over to this Gentile king and says, I am your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria and the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. Ahaz also took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house and sent a present to the king of Assyria. 
and the king of Assyria listened to him. The king of Assyria marched up against Damascus and took it, carrying its people captive to Kir and killed Rezin. All right, well, well, there's more on Ahaz, but that's, that's all we need to know for now. So, so, um, so if you think about the, the land, again, not a great map, but if we've got this land here, and roughly, you know, Judah is down here, um, Israel's up here, and, and then we've got Syria up here. Again, this isn't exactly right, but we've got, you know, the, the Assyrians over here. And there's always this interplay between, um, I mean, Judah's always caught right in between. In fact, Judah and Israel, when they were a united kingdom, were always caught right in between. Because there's always a great power here, whether it's the Babylonians or the Assyrians, and there's always a great power here. And so they're, they're just squeezed all the time. By this point, of course, the kingdom is divided. And so uh, Judah, which is where, um, which is where, uh, where, where this all takes place, also has another concern, which isn't just whatever's going on here and whatever's going on here, but actually what's going on right up here. Um, and in this case, what, that, that's, that's what's mainly in view. You know, what's going on right here directly to the north uh, is, is going to be the issue in, in Isaiah 7. Now, again, reminder, it's not, this isn't all put in direct chronological order. So there's some skipping back and forth. In this case, we're actually skipping ahead. We started with, in chapter 6, the year of King Uzziah's death, in the year that King Uzziah died. And now we're already past, um, uh, a, uh, sorry, we're already past Jotham into the reign of Ahaz. So we've kind of skipped an entire king. And why is that? Because 1 through 12 is meant to be thematic and is meant to point us to certain realities that kind of shape the whole rest of Isaiah's ministry. In this case, the reality that kind of shapes it, the thing that holds these chapters together, I think, in, cha- in 7, 8, and 9, is this concept of the coming child. The fact that the Messiah would be um, a child. And if you just remember in chapter 9 how this is phrased, um, and you know this well, so I don't, I, don't, um, I don't need to belabor this. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So that child... Um, that child promise, that messianic promise that's going to come through a baby is, is what binds these together, not necessarily chronological sequence. Okay, so let's see what happens. We know about Ahaz, we know he's a bad king. Incidentally, there's a lesson here that Kings tries to teach us, which is um, Jotham, his father, is actually a good king. Um, in fact, every indication is Jotham is a believer who, it says he walked in the ways of his father David, he was buried with, or he slept with his father, you know, it uses all that language that tells you that he's, he's genuine. And actually, Jotham, it says, didn't worship false gods. But here's what it says about Jotham that sort of leads to Ahaz, and it's just a good generational lesson, which is what Jotham doesn't do is it says he didn't tear down all the high places. So he wasn't participating, and, and he was against it, but he didn't go after it. And, and this is one of the repeated lessons of Kings. It's not enough to just 
refrain from evil, although that's a sign of belief and a sign of godliness. You know, we're staying, I'm staying away from these things. I don't do these things. But actually, in terms of the generational effect, there's, there's an important lesson in Kings that, no, you have to actually aggressively root these things out because what tends to happen is um, the next generation, what you didn't root out, ends up really ensnaring them. And so it's not always the case, but it's most of the time the case. And, and it, it definitely is with Ahaz because Ahaz just embraces it all. And, and whatever is left over that Jotham didn't go after, Ahaz is just drawn to. And, and he, he, that's his life. And, and in fact, he becomes indistinguishable from, uh, from the pagan nations around him. Um, all right. So let's look at what happens. Um, we, we read a little bit about this episode um, in 1 Kings 15, although I didn't, I didn't read all the verses of it, or 1 Kings 16. Um, in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. Now, um, so, so here, here just, just so you know what, who we're talking about. What happened is that these two nations, Syria or Damascus, in this case it's called, this is the city there, and, and then Israel, they combined together. And they made this alliance, and their, their idea was they're going to go up against Jerusalem. And so that's what he's afraid of. Now they make it, but they, don't actually, they aren't actually able to um, destroy it. But here's what it says in verse 2. When the house of David was told... Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of, uh, that, again, Ephraim is another way of talking about Israel. Um, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of the people shook as trees of the forest shake before the wind. Um, and the Lord said to Isaiah, go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shir Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, be careful, be quiet. Do not fear and do not let your heart beat faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands and, and at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it. Let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabil in the king, uh, the king in the midst of his. Thus says the Lord, It shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. So, what the Lord says in verse 4 is um, basically, stay calm. Um, and, and there's a, we know from Kings that there's something else behind this, which is don't immediately try to solve this in the way that you normally, or, your, or even your counselors are telling you to solve it. So what Isaiah is actually doing is he's saying, look, I, I know that, what you're being told to do and what you instinctively want to do is to find some other political alliance. It's just a natural impulse. You know, you've got an enemy on your doorstep. You want to look around and say, who can help me defeat them? What army can I get to, to help, uh, to recruit, to kind of help me out? And, and what, what um, he's told is, don't do that. Don't give in to that impulse. Instead, what you need to do is just trust the Lord at this point be quiet, don't fear, do not let your heart um, be uh, uh, um, faint. 
Here, here's what one commentator says, and, and this is, I think, this really captures it. Um, the issue is as clear-cut as that. Will Ahaz seek salvation by works, in this case political alliances, or by simple trust in, in the divine promises of God? That's what he's being faced with. Are you going to believe what God says, or are you going to try to take matters into your own hands? Now, look, uh, we have to be a little bit careful here, because it's not wrong if you're, if you're involved in politics, if you're involved in the military, if you're involved in business, it's not wrong when you're faced with a problem to look around and say, okay, what's the wise solution? You know, maybe we should have an alliance with this other nation, or maybe we should try to, you know, merge together with this business, or, or maybe we should seek help from a banker. You know, there, there are all kinds of things we can do. Um, and, and, but the, the issue here is a little different from how we have to navigate life. We have to use wisdom. We have to be, you know, thoughtful about what God's words taught. But, but it's, it's as if Ahaz now has a, has a verse from the Bible that tells him what not to do. Because Isaiah is a prophet of God. Isaiah is speaking God's word directly to him. So the analogy here uh, isn't so much, you know, us trying to figure out how to, you know, be wise in life. The analogy really is if there's something that God's word has specifically said not to do, the question is, are you going to do it or not? Are you going to rest in what he says, or are you going to navigate life, filtering it through your own judgment of what you think is going to be best for you? And we've talked about this before when it was when we were talking about songs, but it's a it's a it's a biblical theme that just is on almost every page or at least every page of narrative from from Genesis three on, which is are you going to navigate based on what you see? Remember, that's, that's exactly the language that's used of Eve. She looked at the fruit. She saw that it was pleasing the eye and good for food. She took it and ate it. And what God says to her is, you, you should have listened. You should have listened to my word. And this is, again, I know I've said it before, but this is what the New Testament means when it says, walk by faith, not by sight. You know, there's a way of navigating life that is, you know, I just figured it out. And, and if it seems like I should lie here, I'll lie here. And if it seems like it'd be better for me to do this, I'll do that. Um, and instead of listening to what God has said. And here Ahaz is confronted with a really clear choice and the choice and, 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 and the listening Ahaz, if Ahaz had listened, if he had walked by faith, it would have been be calm. Um, just rest. Yep. Is there, were there ever times in the Old Testament where it's permissible for them to ally or get help from surrounding pagan nations? Or was that like a general no-no? It was a general no-no. Yeah. Um, yeah. Even, if, even if Isaiah hadn't come to him, he should have known. That's, this should, it's probably not a good idea. No, you're right. He should have known that going to Assyria was a terrible idea. Um, you're right. Now, he might have still been scared. You know, Isaiah's telling him more than don't go to Assyria, although certainly it would include don't go to Assyria. Isaiah's telling him, you've got to just trust that God's not even going to let Jerusalem fall which he wouldn't have necessarily had a promise for at that point. But you're right. The, the whole going to Assyria thing, you know, I mean, it's what's worse than that, isn't it? Stripping all the gold out of the temple and sending it um, to Tiglath-Pileser. I mean, it's, yeah, that's all just way out of line. And I, he didn't need Isaiah to tell him that. You're exactly right. So, here's, so Isaiah's giving this prophecy um, about, you know, 
let's say 7:30 for so um and and he's he's saying don't worry about them it's not going to happen he gives it in this poetic form in in 7 8 and 9 it shall not stand it shall not come to pass within 65 years verse 8 Ephraim will be shattered from being a people and if you think about that and if you think about the timing of all of it and you and you look at Kings and Chronicles and, and the extra biblical material you have, you realize it's exactly right because in about 669, uh, 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 this this whole northern kingdom is is um, is is totally shattered, is totally taken away. We can read that in Second Kings 17, um, and and they're they're transferred by Ashurbanipal to Assyria. And we also read a little bit about that in Ezra chapter 4. In any case, uh, this is the call. And here's the, here's the key line at the end of verse 9. If you do not stand firm in faith, you will not stand firm at all. And that may be the most uh, concise way of summarizing the whole message of Isaiah. Right there. It's given to a ultimately pagan king, I mean, he wouldn't have said he was a pagan, but he was, uh, ultimately given to a wicked pagan king, and, um, and, 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 but it captures it all. If you don't stand firm in faith, you don't stand firm. And, and that's, the, that's the critical call of Isaiah, um, even to us today. Now, sometimes they had very specific ways in which they were called to stand firm in faith, just as we do today. So what Ahaz faced isn't necessarily what you face. What um, you know Hezekiah is going to face isn't the same as what we face. We're not in charge of a city with you know armies on our doorstep, but it's the same principle. The principle is if you don't actually stand in your faith, then you get totally you won't stand firm at all. But I want to read you another quote because. I think this this summarizes. I don't typically do this. I know, but um, I, I want to read this summary kind of paragraph of what's happening here, just so you can understand the way it applies to us. For Isaiah, faith in the Lord's promises was a practical way of life for the here and now, and it was as much a national policy as an individual exercise. The need for such a policy was created by the pressures of Assyrian imperialism on the lands of Western Palestine. So you're thinking about the map. But, here's the key. As Isaiah understood it, the real issue was not one of military muscle nor of political cleverness in creating defensive alliances, but whether the Lord could be trusted to do what his word promised. For the northern kingdom, variously called Israel, Ephraim, or Jacob, the fatal decision had already been taken. We're going to see that. Um, But for Judah, the moment of decision was about to come. At this crux, Isaiah confronted Ahaz. So here's here's what that paragraph is saying. That it's really making two big points. One is that the issue in Isaiah often presents itself as, you know, uh, it's, it's given to kings and it's given to whole nations. Are you going to make alliances? Are you going to, uh, um, you know, do all these political things? Or are you just going to trust the Lord? But, but in Isaiah, there's this other track where it's always, that it's always working on, which is there's this personal level in which that same choice is being offered, that same, that same decision is being put in front of everyone. 
Are you going to stand firm in faith? Are you going to walk through life based on what God has said in his word, even though it may appear to make things more difficult or it may appear to um, you know, not solve all your problems? It, 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 there may be all kinds of ways in which it appears not to work. But are you going to do that or are you going to start to rely on your own way of figuring things out? And that's, that's, that's the, the, the crux of it all. Now, and, and what we'll see in Isaiah is it comes to an even more of a fine point because he'll say relying on God's word also, you know, God's word is centered on God's Messiah. So, you know, Isaiah doesn't put it in quite this language, but here, here's the thing. To, to trust God's word, to follow God's word, is to follow Christ. Uh, that, those, are, those are inseparably connected. And Isaiah shows us that at the center of God's word is God's promised Messiah. But, but that's, that's the issue. The other, the other thing that, that we see, and that, that quote makes clear, that paragraph I just read, is that, um, that, that in reality, um, the, the decision... Uh, he says the decision had already been made in Israel. And now the question was, what was Judah going to do? And, and that's important to keep in mind because the northern kingdom, by the time of Isaiah, um, had already given into idolatry and had already essentially made itself just one of a number of different... Hey, uh, one of a number of different... Um, nations trying to align itself with other powerful nations. In other words, Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, or, or you know, whatever, there are different words used for Ephraim, had already become a pagan nation. They, they had already cast their lot. Now, um, some, so some of what Isaiah is going to do, and this is just worth bearing in mind, we're not quite there yet, but worth bearing in mind, some of what Isaiah is going to do is he's going to point to the people of Judah, and he's going to say, you know, what your brothers, what your fellow Jewish people did up there is exactly what you cannot do. And because look what's happened to them. And so he'll even point to current events in Israel and say, see, that's what happens if you go down that road. Um, and so that just a historical note to keep in mind. Footnote to that. Think about Isaiah 9, which I read already where it says that, Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Where does that take place? Well, this is it's very interesting because what it says in 9.1 is there will be no gloom for her who is in distress or in anguish. Sorry, I've got it in a different translation in my head. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. So you see what's being said there, which is really amazing. Most of the time, um, Isaiah looks north and says, just everything they did, don't do it. Look what's happened to them. But in Isaiah 9, while he's giving this promise of the Messiah, where is the messianic ministry going to be? Well, he says it's going to be in Galilee of the Gentiles the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, which is, which is the northern kingdom. And, you know, I, I know that how our minds work. You know, you read Galilee, you're immediately thinking New Testament. And you should be. I mean, that's where Jesus' ministry takes place by and large. But, um, and that's where he's brought up. But there's something really 
um, significant about that from the perspective of Old Testament history. Because what Isaiah says is, those people who are in darkness, it's called Galilee of the Gentiles, because they Gentiles, they own it, basically. But those people are going to be the ones on whom the light dawns. Because the Messiah actually is going to, in a sense, the light, if you will, is going to start there. And, and then move down. So that's, you know, again, geographically, it's important to keep all these things in mind. And historically, because they, that Isaiah has them in mind. And Isaiah uses them over and over again. Does that make sense? All right. Questions about that or anything? Okay. Then let's go into the actual sign. The Lord speaks to Ahaz a second time here. This is in uh, beginning in verse 10. And... Um, and, and we don't know, we don't know exactly how much time elapsed between verses nine and 10. It could have been right away. Um, there's no reason to think it wasn't right away, but there's no reason it has to be right away. So anyway, we don't know. Um, and, and what has the Lord already said? The Lord has said, don't worry because I'm going to destroy these, um, this, this Syria, Damascus, like that, that there's nothing for you to worry about there. Don't, don't do what your instincts are telling you to do, or what your advisors are telling you to do. Just, just uh, stand firm in faith. And then the Lord speaks to him again. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will, I will not put the Lord to the test. Now, this is... Um, this is a really interesting window into Ahaz's faith or lack thereof. Um, normally, it, it, normally when, when people ask God for a sign, normally it's a sign of their lack of faith. Because, you know, God says, here's what I'm going to do. And they say, well, can you prove it to me? Can you show me something that would make me believe what you actually said? And that's... That's very um, dangerous territory. There are some godly men who do that in the in the Old Testament, but it's never looked on positively. Even though sometimes God acquiesces and says, "Okay, I'll give that to you," but it's not a good thing. And remember what Jesus says. I mean, if we want to think about the gospel, uh, the gospels when they ask him continually for signs, he says, "It's a wicked and adulterous generation that asks for a sign," because it, it, if if you if you had the word of God, and then you say, I'll believe it if, then you're really not believing it. And you should just have stand firm in faith. So, so there is a sense in which signs, most of the time, you read about them in the Bible, are or asking for signs are kind of a sign of unbelief. And, and the other thing interesting about signs to note in the Bible is that they actually don't usually convince people. Um, they... they they almost never, and I'm, I'm trying to think if there are exceptions to this, but I think I'm comfortable saying at least almost, they almost never persuade anyone who didn't wasn't already trusting God's word. In other words, we think today in our in our kind of fallen understanding, we think, but if I just if I saw something like water on both sides of the Red Sea and walked through on dry land and manna every morning, then I would never doubt. Um, but actually, that's not really um, defensible biblically. 
because it, it just doesn't work that way. So signs are fraught with difficulty. However, the situation here is that God told Ahaz to ask for a sign. So he actually gave him a command, a word, that was ask for a sign. Because God wanted to show him clearly that what he said was, was true. And that's the, you know, that's the flip side of it. Sometimes, for instance, Jesus does give signs to reinforce what he's already said. That's most of what the miracles of the Gospels are. They're kind of the signs that reinforce what he, who he says he is. But, um, the, and, 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 but Ahaz doesn't even want that. We know he hasn't listened to the word of God. And he doesn't even want to see the sign that goes along with the word of God that's supposed to, you know, reinforce it. And he, he, he kind of masks it in this spiritual sounding language. I don't want to put the Lord to the test, but that's not what he's doing. He's not putting the Lord to the test because the Lord's told him to ask for this. He's told him to, to you know, to, to, to demand it. And, and he can even pick what the sign is. And so... Here's, um, here's how uh, the prophet responds. Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you um, to, to weary men that you may weary God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Um, and I want to note something here just really quickly. In 13, um, there's this switch with the pronouns that you can't really see in English. So he talks about the house of David. A whole house of David has to hear this. But then he says, is it too little for you, singular, um, speaking to Ahaz, that you weary men, you may weary God also. And then in verse 14, he, he switches to, you know, y'all. It's plural in 14. The Lord will give you plural a sign. So... The, the problem was with Ahaz, but the Lord was going to give Judah a sign, we might say. Okay, behold, what's the sign? Uh, behold, a, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And we'll go on in, in, a, in a minute just to talk about the, the rest of it. But um, let's talk about this virgin conceiving. Um, there's, there's a word that's used here that um, is a word, the word Alma, that's the word that's, um, that's translated as virgin. Um, there are some, this is very recent, but there are some very modern translations and some scholarly commentaries that will translate it as something like old, uh, or sorry, young woman. Um, and the reason for this is because um, there's another word that can also mean virgin. And so critical commentators would say, well, why does he use the word Alma and not this other word? The, the, the thing about that, so but what they're really getting, I mean, it, you, you get the point. It's not really a translation issue. It actually becomes a theological issue because then they'll say, well, it's just a young woman here and, and Matthew kind of, kind of twists that and makes it into this uh, this prophecy of a virgin birth. The issue, though, is that in, in, when if you trace the word Alma, this word for, for um, uh, uh, 
that's translated as virgin, it, it, it's never um, it's never referring to uh, a married woman. It, it always does seem to, in fact, refer to someone who is um, younger and unmarried, which would imply um, which would imply virginity. So it doesn't it doesn't specify the the sort of sexual history of the woman in, in the way that there are, there are other words could, but. But you never are going to find a place where it's not used that way. So, and then, and then uh, you compound that and say, when this is before Christ, when about 250 years before Christ, when the Jewish interpreter or the Jewish commentators were translating it into Greek, into the Septuagint, um, they translated it with a Greek word, Parthenos, which does mean virgin unmarried woman. And that was clearly the right Greek word to use. And so if the, if the takeaway is Matthew is sort of, you know, playing fast and loose with Alma, well, actually, Alma's always used that way in the Old Testament, and the Jewish interpreters who translated into Greek used an even more specific word um, to, 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 uh, to translate it. There are the other the other sort of third argument I don't want to get too far into the weeds is, is the alternative Hebrew word does actually have some other connotations to it that probably wouldn't fit with the description here. So almost the right word to use, and virgin is what he's describing. Now, let's look at what he says though. So there's this virgin conception and and birth. And it says in verse 15 that um he will, um, that he shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you will dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria." Uh, in that day, the Lord will whistle for the fly that is at the end of the streams of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria, and they will all come and settle in the steep ravines and in the clefts of the rocks and on all the thorn bushes and on all the pastures. Now, what is he describing here? Well, let's talk about the child first. First, it says, um, from a very young age, he shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. Now, this is a phrase that people have wondered what it means. I mean, uh, at the very basic level, it would be a kind of a, a simple diet that he's going to have. And so if you're trying to fill out the picture, you might say that what Isaiah's, so we've got this virgin birth, that what Isaiah is describing is someone who's, um, who's you know, just eating simply, who's kind of from a, a modest, we might say a modest uh, background, who's not, he's not royal in any way. Um, at least not obviously, he's not in the household of the king or anything like that. It's also, it's also a phrase, as you know, that's used to be living in the land. Um, this is the description that is often given of the promised land, uh, that, that it's, 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 a fl it's flowing with milk and honey. And so if we were to kind of add to this a little bit, we might say that he's not visibly and obviously in the king's household, but he is, um, but nonetheless, he is in, in the land, and that's going to be important because 
what we're going to find is that the land, before this boy is even of any age at all, the land is going to be deserted and, and the people are going to be taken into exile. And that, that becomes the key point, that this virgin birth of this boy with a modest background, and who, but who's living in the land, is going to take place after, so post-exile. And that's a massive... Um, that's a, that's a massive prophecy from Isaiah. Because what he's saying to Ahaz is, Ahaz, the sign that's going to be given is a sign that, uh, that you didn't even ask for, but I'm going to give it to the house of Judah anyway. It is a sign that's going to be in the land, but after the land has been totally deserted. And he goes on to describe how this desertion is going to take place. Verse 18, the Lord will whistle for the fly that's at the end of the streams of Egypt and for the bee that's in, uh, in Assyria. In that day, the Lord will shave with a razor that is hired beyond the river with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair and the feet, and will sweep away the beard. In that day, a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep, and because of the abundance of milk that they give, he will eat curds, for everyone who is left in the land will eat curds and honey. In that day, every place where there used to be a thousand vines, where a thousand shekels of silver, be briars and thorns. With bow and arrows, a man will come here, and all the land will be briars and thorns. And as for all the hills that used to be hoed with a hoe, you will not come here for fear of briars and thorns, but they will become a place where cattle are let loose and sheep tread. All right, let, let's, just, let's just cut to the chase because we're running out of time. Um, this, is the, this is the promised sign. This is the, the promised child. This is the first um, instance we get where the child is mentioned. Again, that we're going to carry that through to chapter 9, but we're going to put this on our list of things we're looking for with the child. But what we know is that exile is going to happen for Judah. And, and here's a key thing that Ahaz needs to hear. It's going to happen from these very Assyrians to whom he himself is now appealing for help. So the Babylonians um, are, 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 are going to uh, be the ones who, who take Jerusalem. But the Assyrians are going to sweep through this land and kind of decimate all these things. In other words, exile is going to happen. Um, and, 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 and what Ahaz has done in making this fatal decision to not trust the Lord and instead to turn to these other enemies is not only not going to help him, but it's actually just going to play into the hands of what the Lord is going to do in, in driving his people out um, into exile. So the Lord's very gracious to... Um, to Ahaz in giving him this sort of last final time. And I think that too is a reminder to us. Maybe we'll just end on this because we've got to go. Um, that too is a good reminder to us. You know, I've said it before, even as we've been studying Isaiah, but I can't get it out of my head. This, this notion in Psalm 95, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. You can tell by the way Ahaz responds. That first of all, he's not listening. He doesn't have any faith. But you can also tell that he's kind of he's playing games in a sense. He thinks that if he uses some pious veneer to not listen to the Lord, that somehow that helps. And and it is a reminder that, that, that on this day, it was it was over 
I mean, obviously the Lord had planned all this out. Um, so it's not, it's not that, but it's that Ahaz had this opportunity to stand firm in faith. He didn't do it. He just persisted in his unbelief and the Lord um, was going to judge. So, you know, today, like in, in the next 20 minutes, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. And also we see the Lord's grace because even in the midst of this exile, even in the midst of this unbelief, he's still going to send his son. And he's still going to send this one born of a virgin uh, to save his people from their sins. All right, we're out of time. Let me, let me pray. Lord, thank you for this time. There's so much for us to study and reflect upon. Please, by your spirit, take the, the word and the little bit of time we've had to study it and use it to uh, transform our thinking and to conform us to the image of Christ. Glorify your son in and through us, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.